0: Hi there, my name's Adam Weiser. And I'm Grayson Miller, and we are the hosts of Muddy York. As you may have guessed from that clip this week's episode is about a fire but not any fire this wasn't a good fire it was a great fire specifically the great fire
1: of 1849. now most cities have had major blazes in their history like the great fire of london in 1666 or the great fire of chicago in 1871. toronto has had two great fires of our own one in 1849 and another in 1904. Urban fires are still a problem today, obviously, but they used to be an even bigger threat than they are now. Why is that? Well, for one thing, people still used open flames to provide light and heat. In 1849, there was no electric power in Toronto, and most Torontonians couldn't afford gas heating. So people used candles, lanterns, and stoves, all of which could start a blaze. Another problem was that most of Toronto's buildings were still built of wood. Even if a larger building had been made with stone or brick, it might still have wooden shingles, and shingles were especially good at spreading fires, because a burning shingle was light enough to be carried on the wind and deposited on a neighboring building. Stone or brick buildings would also have wooden outbuildings, things like outhouses or stables, These outbuildings were behind the main structure, making it harder to reach them if you were trying to put out a fire. Stone or brick buildings would also have wooden outbuildings, things like outhouses or stables. These outbuildings were behind the main structure, making it harder to reach them if you were trying to put out a fire. Finally, the contents of the buildings could also be a real problem. The Great Fire of 1849 took place in a heavily developed part of the city, with plenty of shops, including hardware stores and dry goods stores. The hardware stores contained oils for waterproofing and timber for construction. The dry goods stores had lots of clothing and linen. All of it was literally fuel for the fire.
0: The area affected by the fire was east of Young Street, surrounded by Adelaide, Church, George and King streets. We posted a map of the affected area online. That may not seem like a big area, but Toronto was a lot smaller in 1849, and this was the city's main business district. King Street was the most important road in Toronto, and all of the best shops were located there. The biggest landmark in this area was St. James Cathedral, not the current building, but an earlier version of the church. You can find a drawing of the old St. James on our Twitter and Facebook pages. I think it looks fine, but contemporary writers weren't very impressed. One pastor wrote, The building as it stands is one with the commonest possible round-headed windows and, but for the ill-proportioned and stumpy attempt at a spire, might answer as well, or perhaps better, as regards to the exterior for a corn exchange. Wow. (laughs) Shots fired. Whether or not it looked like a corn exchange, St. James was still the most important church in Toronto and most of the local elites
1: went there on Sunday services. The fire began in the early morning of Saturday, April 7th. It seems to have started behind a pair of taverns on the northeast corner of King and Jarvis. Taverns could often be fire hazards because they needed stables for their patrons' horses, the horses needed straw to eat, and straw is the perfect material for kindling. The other problem was that tavern patrons who had been drinking didn't always observe fire safety rules. We don't know exactly what started the blaze, but it may have been a careless smoker or an overturned lantern. Because the fire started in the center of the block, people didn't notice it until it began spreading. A little after 1.30 a.m., the bells of St. James began ringing. This was the city's official fire alarm. Once they heard the bells, Torontonians were supposed to spread the word and firefighters were supposed to rush to their stations. It wasn't a great system. To signal a fire, first, someone had to travel from the site of the blaze to either City Hall on Front Street or St. Patrick's Market on Queen Street just to get the keys to the church. They had to travel to St. James, unlock the doors, find the ropes hanging from the belfry, which may not be easy if it was dark, and then finally ring the bells to signal the fire. As you can imagine, this wasn't always a fast
0: process. In 1849, the Toronto Fire Department consisted of six volunteer fire companies, four engine companies and two hook and ladder companies. When we say companies, we mean individual teams from the fire department. Hook and ladder companies use ladders to rescue people from burning buildings and hooks to pull them down. Pulling down the buildings was meant to put out the flames, but also to create breaks between buildings that would be harder for the fire to jump. Of the four engine companies, three used what were called gooseneck pumps. They got that name because the hose was attached to a pipe above the engine and curved like the neck of a goose. These machines would be operated by seven or eight men pumping bars on either side of the engine. Even with all that effort, the engines weren't very powerful, especially because two of them were more than 20 years old. The only modern fire engine in Toronto was called the British America. That's a pretty good name. It had been donated to the city by the British of America Insurance Company, because in those days, insurance companies would actually donate fire engines in the hope that a better fire department would reduce property damage, and hence the number of claims they had to pay. The British America was a more powerful
1: machine that needed 12 to 15 men working each bar to operate. Now, in theory, any citizen between 16 and 60 could be drafted during a fire to operate the engine bars, or perform any other task that the fire department needed. In practice, firefighters complained that civilians were usually content to just stand around and (laughs) gawk. Can you imagine that you were just like out for a night and suddenly you're being drafted into being a firefighter? (laughs) And remember, this was not easy work. You are heaving on these bars trying to pump water onto a fire. It's not gonna take long for you to get exhausted. (laughs) Now originally, just wanted a good night out. originally the water for fighting fires came from licensed water carters. These were private businesses who owned large vats that they filled with water and harnessed to horse teams. They would race to the scene of any fire because the first four water carters to arrive would get paid four, three, two, and one dollar apiece. So just to clarify, Their business was literally having a giant fat of water sitting in front of their home or their business and racing to the fire and hoping you got there first so you could be paid. You know, the world of business has changed. (laughs) It has. By the 1840s, Toronto had built a system of fire hydrants, but the water pressure was feeble. People routinely complained about the company that operated the hydrant system, but it didn't do any good one of the owners was known to show up at fires and announced that people were getting all the hydrant service that they were willing to pay for. It's amazing that nobody took a swing at him. Wow. The one piece of good news for the fire department was that three of the companies were based out of a fire hall on the west side of Church Street, just a few blocks away from where the fire had started, so they didn't have far to travel. By 3 a.m.,
0: the fire covered three blocks, and many of the big shops along King Street were in flames most of the merchants tried to save as much merchandise as they could. However, one man, Thomas D. Harris refused to allow any goods to be removed from his shop because he insisted that his building was fireproof. It turned out it wasn't. What a surprise there. The bank of the home district on George Street was set ablaze. And so were the offices of two Toronto newspapers, the Patriot and the mirror. Publisher Richard Watson led a group of men into the Patriot office where he tried to salvage equipment before it was destroyed. As the building filled with smoke, his companions were rescued through a window, but Watson tried to make it out through the stairs. His absence wasn't noticed in the confusion, but a search would be launched after he didn't return home. His body was discovered in the charred remains of the building. Amazingly, he'd be the only
1: person to die in the fire. There was very little wind that night, but by now, the fire was big enough to create its own air currents, and these began pushing it west towards St. James. It was helped by the fact that the water supply broke down right around this time. A newspaper called The Examiner would report, No one can shut his eyes to the fact that much of the damage resulted from the want of a sufficient supply of water. It is the opinion of many persons who were on the scene that, with a good supply of water, the fire might have been prevented from extending further than Nelson Street. Nelson Street is the original name for Jarvis. We don't know what caused the water supply to fail, but everyone knew about the problems with Toronto's hydrants. At this point, a piece of a burning wooden shingle would be carried on the wind and land on the wooden frame of a window in the Cathedral Tower of St. James. The building didn't immediately catch fire, and bystanders might have had a chance to put out the flames, but according to the examiner again, Spectators indulged in speculations as to whether the sparks would ignite the wood, some expressing one opinion and some another, while if they had acted instead of idly speculating, the cathedral might have been saved. After the blaze was out, Toronto firefighters would loudly complain that bystanders were unwilling to do anything to help them. One spectator
0: described what happened once St. James caught fire. The whole interior of the church in the course of an hour was transformed before the eyes of a bewildered multitude looking powerlessly on. First into a vast burning fiery furnace and then as the roof collapsed and fell into a confused chaos of raging flame. Fortunately, there was enough time to remove the library, the hymn books and even the church organ before the tower collapsed. In 1849, the land that makes up St. James Park today was solidly developed and most of this area went up in flames. Around this time, the fire jumped to the south side of King Street and the original St. Lawrence Market began burning. By now, the fire was at its height, engulfing six blocks of the city, and there were reports that the flames could be
1: seen from St. Catharines. Toronto was saved by two events. One was a rain shower that began at 3.30. It didn't last very long, but it dampened the neighboring buildings so they wouldn't catch fire when burning embers landed on the roof. The second was the arrival of soldiers from the local garrison to support the fire department. The firemen were especially grateful to the troops, and wrote that, had it not been for the timely arrival and assistance of the military in seconding their endeavors on that night of woe, Toronto would not now stand as it does. By 5 a.m., the fire was under control, and an hour later, the flames were nearly out the fire left 10 to 15 acres of Toronto in ruins, including St. James Cathedral and St. Lawrence Market. Damages were estimated at between 5 dollars and $700,000, which was a lot of money in 1849. The good news was that these were boom times in Canada. If you were a shop owner, and you didn't own your old building, and you had managed to save some of your stock, You could be back in business at a new location within a week. One of the two newspapers affected by the fire would put out a new issue just two days later. The other would resume publishing a little more than a month after the fire. The other good news was that all of the insurance claims would eventually be paid. In those days, major fires could bankrupt insurance companies that didn't have enough cash to pay all of the claims. There were naturally suggestions for improving
0: fire safety in Toronto and the city passed a new building code in 1850. Later that year, the fire department wrote a letter to the city outlining their complaints. They said that the city didn't budget enough for uniforms and many of the firefighters had to spend their own money on personal equipment. They also pointed out that the Toronto Fire Department was less than half the size of Buffalo's and only had four engines for a city of 24,000 people. When the city failed to take action, most of the firemen would resign en masse. Toronto effectively had no fire department until the end of the year when city council offered more generous terms. Most of the buildings that had been destroyed in the Great Fire would be rebuilt within a year. The old St. Lawrence Market would be replaced by St. Lawrence Hall, which still exists today and will be discussed in our very next episode. The reconstruction of St. James began in 1850 and the church would reopen in 1853. However, the current building included the full tower and the spire wouldn't be
1: completed until 1875. Huh. So for those of you who think that Toronto never plans ahead, Uh, Just know, it's been that way right from the start. (laughs) Originally. And we also
0: love getting rid of great old buildings. So, I mean, the fire did it this time, but uh,
1: it's still happening all around the city. So, thank you for listening. Our next episode will be about the history of St. Lawrence Market. Uh, There will be extended descriptions of food, uh, so be sure to eat before you listen. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave ratings and reviews on whichever platform you use. And feel free to shoot us your comments and questions at muddy underscore at outlook.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter at Toronto underscore history or on Facebook at facebook.com slash muddy york history. All one word. We'll see you in two weeks.